A tale is told about a small town that had been historically dry, but then a local businessman decided to build a tavern. A group of Christians from a local church were concerned and planned an all-night prayer meeting to shortly intervene. It just so so happened that shortly thereafter, lightning struck the bar and burned it to the ground. The owner of the bar sued the church, claiming that the prayers of the congregation were responsible. But the church hired a lawyer to argue in court that they were not responsible. The presiding judge, after his initial review of the case, stated that no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer and the Christians do not. Today we are studying John 17, and it is Jesus' prayer on the night before his crucifixion. Let's see what we can learn from it and apply to our lives. Let me open in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, may we believe in the power of prayer, that prayer, um, that you will change things. We pray that you would change hearts. Thank you for giving us this pattern of prayer. I pray that you would help us to learn from it this morning and maybe change the way that we pray. And I pray that you would enlighten our minds this morning. Let us learn from your word what you would have us to learn so that we may glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. There were times that Jesus prayed silently, but here he spoke out loud, and he prayed for the benefit of those around him who were intended to overhear him. And I can picture this in my head. You know, the disciples are walking along after the Passover celebration. He had taught them about the true vine. He had warned them about the persecution to come. He told them about the Holy Spirit and what he would do, like Donna taught us last week. He promised them he had overcome the world. The disciples are, you know, listening. They're talking among themselves. And then Jesus started praying. And I can imagine the disciples going, wait, he's not talking to us anymore. And slowly silence falls among them. And, you know, maybe the guys at the back are the last ones to catch on to what's going on. And maybe they're hurrying up so that they can get closer to Jesus to hear. They got to listen in on a prayer from Jesus to his father. Times maybe using it as a pattern for themselves. So Jesus was almost at the end of his earthly ministry. He's preparing to take up his heavenly ministry, which is what? Interceding for believers. Why do we need someone to intercede for us? Well, we see in the book of Job, Satan standing before God, accusing righteous Job. Satan prowls the earth, looking for someone to devour, trying to hinder all he can from coming to salvation. Revelation 12.10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan accuses, Jesus intercedes. And no accusation against the believer will stand, because our sins have been paid for in full by his own sacrifice. So what is Jesus doing right now? He is praying for us. We should all say amen. Um, John 17 verses 1 to 5 are about Jesus and the Father, and the key word is glory. And though glory is mentioned in each section here. Verses 6 to 19, Jesus and his disciples, the key word is kept. Verses 20 to 26, it is about Jesus and the church, where the key word is one. Please do not think you need to write down everything that I 
put up here. Uh, I'm a visual learner, so it helps me to actually see things. But you be you. Verses 1 to 5, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom he has given. To all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words is he referring to? I think all of chapters 13 to 16 leading up to this, but probably especially 1633, where he had told them, take courage. I have overcome the world. You're going to be hated, but I am still in control. The disciples are thinking tragedy. Jesus is thinking glory. They are thinking loss. He is thinking triumph. So did you ask yourself, why do we bow our heads when we pray, when Jesus lifted his eyes? I asked myself that. Matthew tells us that Jesus fell on his face to pray at Gethsemane. Our posture during prayer is not mandated. Many psalms talk about bowing down. It's the posture of our heart that is important. There's nothing wrong with praying as we drive, as long as you keep your eyes open. A quick arrow prayer to God during the middle of a conversation is fine. I think we tend to bow our heads and close our eyes um, because it shows reverence, and I think it's also so that we don't get distracted. If someone was praying and I could see things going on, you know, I'd be squirrel. So he said, the hour has come. Everything was on a divine timetable. It was by divine appointment. The hour is linked with glory working towards glory. All of history is looking forward to this. All of the Old Testament pointed to this hour when prophecy would be fulfilled. The glory hour was to reconcile sinners to God, planned from eternity past. It was an hour like no other. There was glory in the cross. There still is a divine timetable Today, in your life, in my life, in every single moment, God is sovereign over it all. But he operates with unalterable precision, and we can rest in that fact. I remember teaching a long time ago to look for the words so that in Scripture. Take note when you see so that in a verse. So that's our purpose statements. They are terms of conclusion. Sometimes they're just translated as that, but it's the same Greek word used. It's just like when you see a therefore. When you see a therefore, you look to see what it's there for. Um, When you see a that or a so that, look and see if there's a purpose statement that follows it. Occasionally, it's translated as to, T-O, and those are a little harder to spot, but we'll see one today. Some examples are 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Or Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others so that... They can see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. The so that will often give us a principle to apply. Now, that kind of cuts it off. Or maybe it doesn't. No, it doesn't cut it off. It just cut off back there. Um, I am a highlighting junkie. I was trained in Bible study to look for repeated words, to look for comparison, to look for terms of uh, conclusion, to ask the five W's and the one H, who, what, when, where, why, how. 
um, look for the therefore, so this reason. I highlight every so that that I run into. And you can see a that in verse 1. In verse 2, it's translated as two. And I was astounded at the number of that's and so that's that are in John 17. And we'll talk about that more as we go along, but be watching for them. In verse 1, the so that is the purpose of Jesus asking the Father to glorify him, that the Son may glorify you. And, of course, this is referring to the cross. The Son would glorify the Father by taking on the sin of mankind. Now, he gave two reasons for his glory, or reasons he was worthy of the glory. One, because of who he is. And this is in verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus, the creator, has authority over all. He is God. He had full authority over Judas, over the high priests, the Roman officials who were about to sentence him. He had complete authority over the hostile mob that's out there crying, crucify him, crucify him. The second reason he deserved glory was because he had accomplished the work the Father had sent him to do. And that's in verse 4. And it's interesting here that he spoke of a future event using verbs that are in the past tense. The work is as good as done. It was a certainty it would be accomplished. If Jesus had come down from the cross, we would all go to hell. Verse 2, you granted him authority that he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And we've talked about this word know before, how it means to be grounded on personal experience. It's not just the head knowledge. You can have a lot of head knowledge about God and not have a personal relationship with him. Knowing God involves listening to his word and applying it. It's obedience to his word. It's getting to know his character better. He is infinite, so we will spend all of eternity knowing God better, and we will never completely know him. The lesson covered this, but it doesn't hurt to repeat it. Eternal life is spoken of in terms of relationship and not duration of time. Philosopher William James said, the value of life is computed not by its duration, but by its donation, except for the obvious if he had lived longer. But such deeds wouldn't have enlarged his supreme donation, his life and death, which provided our great salvation. The work he completed is still bearing fruit by his Holy Spirit. Everyone will live forever somewhere. The somewhere makes all the difference. If you have a relationship with God, you will spend forever with him. If you don't, you will live forever, but in a horrifying destination. This was driven home to me um, a week or so ago when I heard Revelation 14 read. It's in the context of those who will receive the mark of the beast, but it applies to those who do not have Jesus as their Savior. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Isn't that horrifying? I certainly want eternal life with the only true God and Jesus, whom the Father sent. Now, a key word we see here in John 17 is give. Can you see all the little purple highlights? I think the verb here is used 17 times. Anytime you see a word repeated over and over again, it is a key word. Try to figure out what the significance of it is when you see it. Most of the time, give is used here. It is the Father is the one doing the giving. 
The Father gives eternal life. He gives authority over all flesh. He gave believers to the Son. He gave the Son words and work to do. He gave the Son a name. He gave him glory. Verse 5, Jesus prayed for himself, but it wasn't selfish. Jesus often circled back in his prayer, kind of adding layers of detail as he went. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. This should make us think back to John 1, 1 and 2. The word was in the beginning of God. Jesus had glory in eternity past, but he humbled himself and took on the form of a man. He laid aside his glory. At his ascension, he returned to glory in the heavenly kingdom. He took his place back on, uh, back on the eternal throne. Now, in verses 6 to 19, Jesus prayed for his disciples. Um, he said, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Last weekend, my niece and her three kids were visiting, and my granddaughter kept calling one of the girls Olivia, but her name is Abby. And I said to my granddaughter, I said, names are important. You need to call her by the right name. What if I started calling you Pancake? Well, of course, she was highly offended by that. But names are important in the Old Testament. They revealed character. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. God's name is his character. Jesus manifested it. He caused it to shine. Part of his work was to reveal the Father to them. He had declared God's character, all that God is. He was the visible representation of the Father. And it had to be astounding to the disciples that he would teach them to pray, our Father. The Jewish people had a very remote view of God. And Jesus was teaching them how personal the Father was. The disciples belonged to the Father. They had not chosen him. He had chosen them. Jesus knew the eleven weren't perfect. They had faults and failures, but they had kept God's word. He realized their present devotion and their potential for the future. They didn't grasp what was about to happen, but they were convinced Jesus was the promised one, and what he taught them was from God. The disciples had received Jesus' words. They were in a small group with Jesus. We can be taught the truth. Truth has to move from our head to our hearts. So why do we have small groups at Creative Living? Because some things about God's word are better learned in circles than they are in rows. It gives us a chance to ask questions. We can have discussion. We can see others applying scripture to their problems. We can learn life on life when we are, are in circles. God's word is truth. When we come to Bible study, we study the Bible because it is truth. It is God's word to us. Jesus wanted us in the world, but not shaped by the world. How do we develop a holy heart and life in the world? By knowing his word. The greatest way to detect a lie is to know the truth. Jesus' very words had divine origin. Knowing God's word is foundational. You can't obey what you don't know. As you read and study the word, always ask, so what? How does this scripture apply to my life? Do I need to change the way I think? Do I need to change my attitude? Is my speech pleasing to God and edifying to others? Are there sinful habits in my life I need to change? Are there godly qualities 
I need to develop? Do I need to adjust my priorities and change my daily schedule? Do I need to be a better steward of the resources God entrusted to me? The word confronts how we live every day. Verses 9 and 10, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus prayed for his disciples. Who was he not praying for? The world? Anyone answer back? No? Um, Who is the world? As we've talked about before, it's a lost mass of humanity that had set set itself outside the purposes of God. It wasn't because he wasn't concerned with the world, but it was the job of these men, the disciples, to reach the world. Verse 11, we see a petition to the Father. And I am no longer in the world, and they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus asked the Father to keep them, keep them abiding, keep them safe in his name, in adherence to his character. He wasn't asking for protection from trials because he told them they were going to have tribulation in the world. The disciples needed extra grace from the Father because they would no longer have the Son's encouraging presence with them as they continued to live in the hostile world. They must be kept continuing as disciples of Jesus. In the Jewish world of that day, no one continued as a disciple to a dead rabbi. Yet these disciples were to continue to be kept as disciples to Jesus, especially after his death. Did you hear this so that? That they may be one even as we are one. What was the purpose of keeping them? That they would have oneness, that they would have unity. And then unity would be based on the unity of the Godhead. It was stemming from sharing the same nature. Unity among believers needs fellowship. We can't have unity if we're on an island by ourselves. We we should all have close Christian friends we spend time with, friends who encourage us in the Lord, Um, maybe even rebuke us when we go off the rails, Uh, friends we know that pray for us daily. I love the friends that I have that when I get together with them, we talk about God. We talk about what we've learned. We talk about what God is doing in our lives. I don't want to just sit around all the time talking about the mundane, about the weather, about our aches and pains. But we also need friends who don't know God. We can't just sit and steep in Christian tea parties. God doesn't want us isolated from the world. He left us in the world to share the gospel. Skipping down to verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Isolation is not the way to be to avoid the corruption of the world. Be in the world, but not of it. And maybe even a better phrase than that would be, don't be of the world, but sent into it. Be a representative of another world. We are ambassadors for Christ's kingdom. It's okay to be located in this environment, but we don't need to be drawing from it as a source of information and behavior. God probably won't use us if we're wallowing in the filth of this world. It's like a boat in the water. The boat is designed to float in the water, to be surrounded by water on all sides, but there's not supposed to be water in the boat. Our goal as followers of Christ is to actively engage our culture with the gospel without allowing the culture to 
affect us with ungodly morals, values, attitudes, you know, its behavior. Unfortunately, many sincere Christians struggle to get it right. But remember, we have Jesus in the boat with us. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Who was the one that was lost? Judas. He was the weakest link. And Jesus didn't lose him. He lost himself. There's an inexplicable mystery here that Judas played a role in God's sovereign plan to put his son on the cross, and yet Judas was not a robot that had no choice in the matter. Although Satan entered Judas' heart to cause him to betray Jesus, Judas did it willingly because of his greed. God ordained it, but Judas was responsible for what he did. And that's one of those mysteries in the Bible that we cannot wrap our finite minds around. We just have to trust God with it. Verses 13 to 16, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus was getting ready to leave the world. He had taught his disciples so that they would have Jesus' joy perfected in them. This is similar to what we studied in chapter 15. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. As been said many times, the joy of Jesus in us, we can be joyful regardless of the circumstances. To be distinct from the world is the real path of joy. Satan wants the world to believe that sin is going to bring us lasting pleasure, while holiness is going to keep you from having fun. Holiness may be difficult in the short run, but it always results in lasting joy and pleasure. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word. Jesus had spoken audibly to them, but now how does he speak to us? Through his word, through scripture. God's word plays a crucial role in the safekeeping of the disciples. We can trust all of God's word. It is God-breathed. It is inspired Verse 15, Jesus asked the Father to keep them from the evil one. He wanted his disciples kept safe so that they would fulfill their mission. Now, if I got a phone call right now that there was a lion loose in Indianapolis, you would be really careful when you went out to your car, right? You'd be looking around, make sure that lion wasn't there. Ladies, there is a lion loose in Indianapolis. First Peter 5 8, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So walk carefully, ladies. You know God will hold on to you, but be careful to keep holding on to him. But the good news is the lion of Judas will conquer Judah will conquer in the end. Okay, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. When we believe in Jesus, we are born from above by the Holy Spirit. Through the new birth, we get a new nature that desires to please God. We have a new master, a new power to overcome sin. We have a new purpose in life to glorify our Savior, a new identity as a child of God, and a new destiny. Another request, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What does sanctify mean? Set apart for an intended purpose. The disciples had a big mission ahead of them. They were to spread the gospel around the world to Jew and Gentile. We too are sanctified for a mission. We are not just left in the world, 
but we are sent to the world. William Barclay said, Christianity was never meant to withdraw a man from life. It was meant to equip him better for life. Christianity does not offer us release from problems. It offers us a way to solve our problems. Christianity does not offer us an easy peace. It offers us a triumphant warfare. Christianity does not offer us a life in which troubles are escaped and evaded. It offers us a life in which troubles are faced and conquered. The Christian must never desire to abandon the world, but he must always desire to win the world. We are set apart to win the world, ladies. Jesus said in verse 19, I consecrate myself. He was set apart for the cross so that the disciples would be sanctified in truth. Jesus set himself apart to to perform his redemptive work on the cross in order that the beneficiaries of that work would set themselves apart for the work of the mission. In the Old Testament, consecrating was linked to sacrifice. The firstborn of their herd or flock was to be dedicated or sanctified to the Lord your God. That animal was sacrificed, which included death. When Jesus consecrated himself, he was the offering being sacrificed. He was the perfect Lamb of God that fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he was the model for these disciples. These men also lived sacrificial lives. James, the brother of John, was the first of the eleven to be put to death. King Herod had him killed by sword in Jerusalem. Peter, because he didn't see himself as worthy to be crucified like Jesus, was crucified upside down in Rome under the persecution of Nero. Andrew was crucified. He hung alive for two days, exhorting spectators all the while. Philip is said to have been tortured, impaled by iron hooks in his ankles, and hung upside down to die. Bartholomew was skinned alive and crucified. Matthew staked and speared to the ground. Thomas was stabbed to death. The other James was stoned and then clubbed to death. Some accounts say Simon was sawn in two. Thaddeus was beaten with a club and then crucified. John was the only one that wasn't put to death for his faith, but he did suffer greatly. In addition to these disciples, John Mark was dragged to death. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. Matthias, who took the place of Judas, was stoned and beheaded. Paul was beheaded. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown off a wall. He survived and then was beat to death with clubs. But these men had literally gone to the world with the gospel, establishing the church. As they were walking along with Jesus, they had no idea of their future. And they probably would have turned around and run if they had known. I would have. In verse 20, Jesus expanded the prayer to include all who would eventually believe on him. That's us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us also, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be that they may become perfectly one, so that the world will know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Do you remember the key word in this section? One. Good job. Unity. Other scriptures may call this being of the same mind or one body in Christ, perfect harmony. The unity of believers reflects the unity that exists between Father and Son. And unity is not uniformity. 
we're not going to agree necessarily on every minor doctrine, but we have unity based on a common faith, based on salvation. Jesus requested unity among believers so that the world would believe. If we are going to claim to be a Christian, we better be acting like a Christian. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. I think there are two different kinds of glory for the believer. There's present glory in earthly trials. It's living a life that's pleasing to God, knowing we are serving him no matter where we are or what we are doing. There's present glory in suffering. Though I doubt many of us have really suffered very much, we live pretty cushy lives. The disciples knew what suffering was. I read the um, biography of Adoniram Judson, who was the first among the commissioned foreign missionaries from the U.S. He took the gospel to Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. He lost several wives, many children, ended up dying in Burma, but he had a lasting impact in that country. He, what's the word I want? He made, took the Bible from Burmese, no, translated the Bible into Burmese. That's what it was, sorry. Um, present earthly suffering can be glory. Our prayers shouldn't be obsessed with the termination of our suffering, but realize there is purpose in that suffering. There is present glory in earthly trials. We also look forward to a future glory in heaven someday. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And we read the verse today in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we will be transformed from earthly glory into heavenly glory someday. And what a day that will be. John 17, 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus said he would indwell believers, I in them. And the purpose is so that the believers would be perfectly one. He is reinforcing the idea of perfect, complete unity. The Father must be pleased when believers with various personalities and characteristics play well together. Surely he says, like the psalmist in Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, if you saw one locust insect in your yard, you probably wouldn't be too freaked out, right? But locusts have a secret. They travel together in vast numbers. So if you saw an army of locusts in your yard... It would be a different story, right? You'd be calling the exterminator. When God's people, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, move in unity like an army of locusts, we can storm the very gates of hell and make a lasting, permanent impact. The enemy wants us to be splintered as a church, but Jesus wants us to behave as one in unity. Verse 24, we see the last request Jesus made. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. What an exciting request, that we would be with him where he is and see his glory. What a day that will be when we see Jesus face to face, whether it be when we die or when he returns, we will see his glory. And there's a 
so that, hidden here, the ESV says, to see my glory, or more literally, that they keep on beholding my glory, the endless joy of seeing Jesus as he is in heaven. Jesus was loved before the foundation of the world. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election is more than our little brains can fathom. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I believe the doctrine of an election. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. Isn't that true? Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus declared to future disciples God's name and will continue to declare it. Jesus is perpetually working through the Spirit in believers. So are you tired of hearing, so that? Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus gave us a pattern for prayer, and he included so many, so that's. I counted 17 in here. So I think we need to take note. So often we go to prayer with a to-do list for God, things for him to accomplish. We want God to do our will. But maybe in praying we should express to God more reasons why. Give him so that's. And the so that should bring him glory. So some examples. Lord, reveal yourself to my daughter so that she will follow you. Lord, help my children to be good parents, so that their children will learn to follow you at a young age. Lord, heal my head, shoulders, knees, and toes, whatever, so that I can share your gospel when I go to the gym. Maybe even a travel mercy prayer. Lord, please give me safe travel so that I can encourage my family with the things I've learned. Lord, bring more children to the children's program so that the next generation will know you better. Think about a so that purpose statement to add to your requests that will bring glory to God. This was a totally new concept to me, and I think it has changed the way I pray. If Jesus prayed this way, shouldn't we? We, what can we learn from this prayer that are things that we, too, can pray? Jesus prayed for preservation. He prayed for joy fulfilled. He prayed for deliverance from evil, to be set apart. He prayed for unity. He prayed for fellowship with Christ and to behold his glory. It's a great template for us in praying for our loved ones and for the world. Now, remember I said glory is mentioned in every section of this prayer. Repeated over and over again was glory and glorify. Well, what is it and how do I do it? What does it look like? Glory is a hard thing for me to wrap my head around, but it's one of the main storylines of the Bible. I think it's almost impossible to define God's glory is the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness of his character. It can have the sense of dignified or exalted. It often communicated God's presence in the Old Testament, like when he was seen in the pillar of fire and cloud that led his people. His glory filled the tabernacle and the temple. Sometimes glory is a noun, like in his glory being revealed. Sometimes it's an adjective, God is glorious. Sometimes it's a verb, God is glorified. 
It is also communicated through his works of creation, redemption, and providence. God's glory was revealed through creation itself. Man was made in the image of God, crowned with glory. Glory is linked to Jesus' incarnation, his birth, his miracles, the transfiguration, his suffering, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, reign, coming victory, and judgment. Glory is identified with the Holy Spirit, with the church, with the new creation. His people responded by glorifying him. God receives glory when people are united in Christ. I remember my son memorizing uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism when he was young, and the first question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The supreme purpose in life for any man or woman, for anyone who's ever been born into the world, is to glorify God. That is what living is all about. Glorifying God should be the end result of every Christian life. So, how do we glorify God? Confess your sins. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? God confronted Adam with his sin, and Adam said, It's the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. He blamed God. God is never at fault when we sin. Blaming God is maligning his glory. To confess is to agree with God that sin is our fault. And then we repent and we change our ways. That glorifies God. We glorify God by bearing fruit. When the world sees that we are different by the Holy Spirit living in us, the Father is glorified. And we put God on display. We glorify God by praising him. Psalm 50:23 says, "The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me." To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. We glorify God by being content in the place that he has put us. If we are discontent, we are questioning God's sovereignty. And now that doesn't mean that you don't work harder to get a promotion. It doesn't mean that if you are lonely, you sit at home and say, well, God put me here, I'll just be lonely. You know, you go out and you find ways to meet others who may be lonely too. It is beneficial to ask God why he has you in the situation you are in. God, what do you want me to learn from this? God, how do I glorify you in this situation? We glorify God by praying according to God's will. We read earlier in John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Asking in his name is asking according to his character and his will. Have you ever questioned why we need to pray? If God is all-knowing, he already knows what's going to happen. If God is in control of all situations, why do we need to pray to him about it? Whatever is going to happen is going to happen, right? Why should I pray? Why? Because he delights to reveal his glory in answered prayer. He shows us his greatness, and we give him the praise he is worthy of receiving and that brings him glory. We glorify God by proclaiming his word. Second Thessalonians 3:1. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be glorified as is happening among you. God is glorified when people hear his word and change happens in their lives. When we sit in a small group and discuss his word, he is glorified. When Christians grow deeper in their knowledge of him and lives are transformed, God is glorified. We glorify God by leaving, leading others to Christ. 
Every time a person is saved from their sin, God receives glory. When they are released from the power of sin and evil, glory to God. Jesus prayed these things on the last night of his life. Shouldn't we be praying these things every night of our lives? Leave you with this quote. While very ill, John Knox, the founder of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, called to his wife and said, Read me that scripture where I first cast my anchor. After he listened to the beautiful prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17, he seemed to forget his weakness. He began to pray, interceding earnestly for his fellow men. He prayed for the ungodly who had rejected the gospel. He pleaded in behalf of people who had been recently converted. And he requested protection for the Lord's servants, many of whom were facing persecution. As Knox prayed, his spirit went home with the Lord. The man of whom Queen Mary had said, I fear his prayers more than I do the army of my enemies, ministered through prayer until the moment of his death. May we all view prayer as this powerful. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Our desire is to live lives that are glorifying to you. Help us to walk every step in a path that is glorifying to you. Change our hearts, change our motives, change our desires to line up with your desires. Most of all, we thank you for your son. We thank you for this prayer. We thank you for the example he was and is to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.